Greetings and welcome to another Different Church Podcast. My name is Jarrett and I hope you are having an awesome day. I'm recording this intro at 12.05 a.m. It's actually Monday night slash Tuesday morning. I'm a day late getting this out. Forgive me. Hopefully that doesn't mess up your week. I just want to say a huge thank you to you for listening. It means so much knowing that people come out to see us on Sundays, that people catch us on live stream, and I especially love the podcast audience. Thank you so much for uh, just paying attention to what we're doing. Um, It's incredible. Um, We don't really have any announcements right now. I just want to set up one thing before we get rolling here. Uh, We are kind of talking about Jesus each week, which I know sounds hilarious. We're a church. Of course, we are talking about Jesus. But, you know, we don't always talk about Jesus. Sometimes we do Old Testament stuff. Sometimes it's like social issues. Uh, But for right now, we are doing a series specifically on Jesus stuff. And um, I love it. It's really cool. It's kind of leading up to Easter here in a few weeks. And I think you're going to love um, what we talk about today. We're we're, uh, focusing on another miracle this week. Um, And I think you're going to dig it. Uh, before we jump in, I just want to explain one thing so you can understand what Hannah's talking about here at the beginning. I got up to do a welcome and I shared kind of some personal news. Uh, I talked about how, you know, we've all been stressed and tired and overworked. And uh, I especially have, have felt that way uh, for a little while in a good way. It's been like um, business stuff has been getting um has been blowing up. The church has been doing really well. So there's just been a lot to do. Um, so my wife, Tiffany actually took a step back at her job, um, so that we could have a little more family time. So that's amazing. And also we're going to kind of focus on another business idea. So that's really cool. Um, but when I said it, I also was wishing her a happy birthday to my smoking hot wife, which of course, if you know me, that is definitely me making fun of the typical evangelical pastor on Sunday. Uh, I would never say something like that from stage. Uh, I always wonder why that's the go-to compliment, not, you know, my very intelligent wife or my extremely wise partner. They always, they always go to that for some reason. Anyway, I just wanted you to be aware that we were uh, kind of having some fun at the American Evangelical Church here. And uh, let's turn it over to Hannah. A couple of things. First of all, was that a welcome or was that a roast? (laughs) And second of all, how come we never hear about smoking hot husbands? Yeah. That's because there's no women pastors. <laughs> Not none. That's a little dramatic. <laughs> you do. You do. Also, there's nothing wrong with calling your partner smoking hot. And also, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this. We're going to stop. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about Jesus. The reason we're here. <laughs> Um, we are traveling through the book of John, kind of, through from now until Easter. So last week we talked about the guy who was paralyzed and couldn't walk, and Jesus was like, get up, um, and then he did. And today we're talking about Jesus feeding 5,000 people. Have any of y'all heard this story before? Cool, 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 cool. Um, let's read it together. We're going to read it, and then I will, you know, we'll discuss, and I'll give you, of course, the paraphrase, which usually starts with what had happened was. But this is what the Bible says happened, okay? This is John chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. And then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down (laughs) with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. 
Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. It's terrifying. <laughs> Turning to Philip, he said, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. And Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed all these people. And then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. He said, there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes and the men alone numbered 5,000. It's too many. <laughs> then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, distributed them to the people. And afterward, he did the same with the fish and they all ate as much as they wanted. And after everyone was full, Jesus told the disciples, gather the leftovers so nothing is wasted. And they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by people who had eaten from the five loaves. <laughs> I like that. All right, Jesus. <laughs> Um, could I please have my blue water bottle? Because I made a tactical error and didn't bring it up here with me. And Jarrett's going to yell at me for being like, <sighs> parched. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, has anyone read John chapter 6? It's long. It's a bit, I mean, the Bible's long. But like John chapter 6 specifically <laughs> is a very long chapter. <laughs> In fact, I have taught Bible studies on John. And like, we have to split John chapter 6 into two weeks because it's so long. There's so many verses. And then the whole thing is dominated by this theme of Passover. More specifically, with one aspect of it, the fact that God fed the children of Israel during their time in the wilderness with bread from heaven. It's a big theme, okay? So the story of the ancient Israelites is told in Exodus 16, and they're out in the desert, and God feeds them with manna, or bread from heaven. And here in John chapter 6, we have this story of Jesus at the beginning of the chapter, and he provides bread for a large crowd in the wilderness. And the story to us, we're like, great, bread in the desert, great. <laughs> but all of the readers or hearers of this story were supposed to instantly remember that God provided bread from heaven for the children of Israel in the wilderness. And it also mirrors this common Jewish expectation that there's gonna be this feast where everyone gets together at the end and God will provide this banquet for the faithful people. Passover time is a great religious feast, kind of like Christmas is or Easter is for us. Probably more like Christmas because there's like more celebrations. Um, Easter, we're like, Easter, one day. Um, Christmas is like oh, the holiday season. It is the most wonderful time of the year. It's my favorite. I can't wait. <laughs> um, I don't know where I was. I've lost my place. <laughs> okay, so Christmas and Easter. This, like, they would get holidays from school, holidays from work. People would pack up their donkeys and go on trips. Like they'd go on pilgrimages to Israel. I mean to Israel, they're in Israel, to Jerusalem. And they would just basically have this feasting time and time of family and everything going on. If you've read the book of John, you may have picked up on the fact that this is the second time John has told us something that happened at Passover time. The first time is at the beginning of the book when Jesus flips over tables and beats people up and drives them out of the temple. All the people who are taking advantage of others, money lenders and money changers, he drives them out of the temple. That's the first time. This is the second time. And there will be a third time when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem at Passover time, just before his death. It's very important for John's understanding that he mentions it three times. And like when John draws our attention to the specific fact that this story happens at the specific time of Passover, He's expecting we will connect it in our minds with Passover itself, where God liberated the children of Israel from Egypt, and with the other Passover events in the book of John. Now, this is one of those like snippets that would be really easy for it to just go straight over our heads. We would just never notice that it's happening. And I feel like we have discussions about this every week, that the Bible was not written for us. 
Um, the Bible is an ancient book written by ancient people for other ancient people in a specific place and time in history. And if you took like any one of the myriad of the writers of the Bible and you were like, okay, listen, in several thousand years, millions of people are going to be reading your words. And not just reading them, like arguing about them and dissecting them and building churches on them and fighting about them and splitting churches on them, you know, the ones they just made. And also like the people are gonna be connecting to God in amazing ways. They probably would like faint. We are very privileged, I think, to have our Bible and to be able to study it and to deepen our understanding of God and faith. Um, We're privileged to have a sacred text in the first place one that has been so important to so many people throughout history that it's been preserved. You might even say that even though the ancient writers had no idea (laughs) that thousands, millions of people would be reading it thousands of years later, like God was aware of that. And so God preserved for us some universal truths and also the story of God and humanity's interaction as they kind of grew in understanding. So in one sense, you ever heard the phrase, there's a plain meaning of the text? Just the plain meaning that anyone can get. In one sense, there is that, right? Like you could read this story, like even a kid could read this story and be like, oh, Jesus cares about people and he wants to feed them. And Jesus can take almost nothing and make it into something crazy. Creation, that is a worthwhile meaning, right? And at the same time, because the Bible is so old, there are so many other layers of meaning like this idea of Passover that will just we would never even notice if we don't dig a little deeper. And we read this story from the book of John today, but actually this story is the only miracle that Jesus does other than raising from the dead that is mentioned in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's in every single one. And everyone gives a little bit different perspective on what happens. So this is where I'm going to like harmonize them all into one. And we're gonna start with what had happened was. What had happened was Jesus was traveling and preaching and teaching and healing people. He'd been doing this for some time now. And basically everywhere he went, people wanted to talk to him. He was constantly in demand. He was constantly like surrounded by as many people as possible. He's basically the Pope. Like anywhere the Pope goes, there's like thousands of people trying to like see him or like touch his finger, right? Jesus is tired. He's tired of all these people. Maybe not of the people, just tired in general. We don't know. I like to imagine Jesus being like, please leave me alone. Also, the disciples had been traveling. Jesus had sent them off on a mission in pairs of two to be teaching and preaching and doing miracles of their own. They've just come back from this expedition. They're all together. The disciples are tired. So they decide we need some downtime. They're like, oh, I know where no one will find us. Four miles that way in the desert on the hill. Just like, good plan, good plan. Let's get a boat. Let's sneak off into the wilderness. No one, there's nothing out there. There's no houses there's no infrastructure, nothing. There's just hills and rocks. We'll be by ourselves. We can just hang. Except some people saw them getting into the boat and they were like, I bet I know where they're going, the desert. <laughs> so we should follow them. And so by the time Jesus got to the other side of the shore with his disciples, uh, there were some people waiting for him already. <laughs> and the word got out. I assume like Again, paraphrase, okay. I assume there were people with ancient binoculars being like, we see him. We see him out in the Sea of Galilee. It seems that he is going north by northwest, which will make his arrival. And they're like passing this along to their people. So all these people start showing up and just more and more and more and more. And it doesn't even tell us how many. It just says, eventually there were at least 5,000 men. 
They don't even count the women and children. I mean, we, don't, we have no idea how many people showed up. I would think it's reasonable to assume that if there's 5,000 men, there's at least that many women and children, probably more. So what do we have, 10,000 people? 15,000 people having a meeting in the desert? Okay, so what was Jesus' reaction? Remember, he's tired. Was he angry? Was he irritated? Did he feel like imposed upon? No. It says he looked on the massive crowd with compassion. And compassion is another word for like empathy. Um, he saw that they looked tired and lost and maybe a little bit hopeful. And so he did what Jesus does. And maybe what we all do when we're tired and something, someone needs our help, he taught them. And he healed as many people as he possibly could. One metaphor the Bible likes to use over and over again for situations like this is a sheep and a shepherd. It says he looked, looked at them and they looked like sheep without his shepherd. They just were all together with, with nowhere to go and they needed help. They needed someone to guide them. And the whole day is full of this. Loads of people, endless conversations, endless giving of like emotional energy. I hope Jesus had the ancient equivalent of coffee. Um, like, I mean, I need coffee on Sundays and y'all are not 10,000 people. Sometimes I need a coffee on days when I don't have to talk to anyone. <laughs> the day is finally starting to wind down and Jesus' disciples come to him with a complaint. They're like, Jesus, we're supposed to, this is not in there, this is in my paraphrase. Because they say, it's getting late. Let's send the crowds away to town several miles away so they can get food for themselves. The undercurrent of this, <laughs> I feel like, is like, Dear Jesus, we were supposed to have a break and instead you have filled our entire day with a church service and we're really tired. Can you please get these people out of here? And I, they keep saying they're hungry and I have nothing to give them. Which is logical, right? Send them away. Let them go get their own food. They had, the disciples didn't have food to feed 10,000 people. It seems practical, but it's not the solution Jesus seizes upon. Jesus is like, ah, you give them something to eat. Now, in one of the versions of this story, the poor disciple Philip is singled out specifically. <laughs> not all the disciples, not you all give them something. Philip, you feed them. <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> Maybe he was the one who was like elected by the group to complain to Jesus. And Jesus was like, ah, and for your bravery, you get to feed 10,000 people. I don't know. So now, we may be inclined to feel bad for Philip, which seems crazy, right? Jesus like viewed all these people, except remember what I just said a minute ago, the disciples had just come back from a trip where they themselves had been preaching and teaching and performing miracles. They had seen Jesus do amazing things before, so they knew Jesus could do stuff, and they themselves had done stuff. So it's not like they were powerless, okay? And Jesus was like, you give them something to eat. And their response was um, a bit of a whiny, are you crazy? Jesus, we don't have any, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough food to feed these people. They were shook. <laughs> I'm a cool kid. This is why I actually want us to land this morning, okay? Because Jesus, they're very dramatic. And Jesus' response to this is, well, what do you have? And they had no idea and had to go look and find out that there was a child near them who had five loaves of bread and two fishes. Okay. <laughs> I think this is a very, 
important point for us to take in. Jesus did not actually ask the disciples to go raise enough money to feed 10,000 people. He said, you feed them. And they said, Jesus, stop being a crazy person. We don't have any resources for this. And Jesus said, well, what do you have? And they had to go look. They weren't even sure what they had. They just knew it wasn't enough to fix everything. So they assumed it was worthless. They discover they have five loaves of bread and two fish. Now the loaves were not like what we think of, like, you know, fresh baked, steamy, like white bread. No, they were like cracker, flat cracker type things, or maybe like a pita bread, imagine. So you couldn't even like slice it into nice pieces for each person. Jesus tells the disciples, he's like, make everyone sit down, groups of 50 or 100. He blesses the food, passes it out. Everyone eats. It says they ate as much as they wanted. Everyone was full. Two times in two of the stories, it says they were ate till they were gorged, which is another word for how you feel after Thanksgiving dinner when you are so full you cannot breathe and have to lie down. And they still picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. Now, I feel like the disciples did something that we do quite often. They didn't see five or 10,000 people. They saw five or 10,000 problems that they couldn't solve. And most of us do the same thing. We are so quick to see what we can't do and so quick to see what we don't have. They looked at the crowd and all they saw was their own inadequacy. We don't have it. We can't do it. Jesus, what's, are you crazy? How could you ask us to do this thing? Did they forget that the son of God was standing right with them? Did they forget that they themselves had witnessed these amazing miracles that he had done? Did they forget already that like they had literally just performed miracles themselves without Jesus anywhere around them? And this continually shows up in our lives because God will show up and we're like, yes, praise be. We're amazed, we're overjoyed. And then in a few days or weeks or months or years or whatever, something happens and we like, we're in a situation, it feels impossible. And we like half-heartedly bring our, whatever it is to God. And we're like, we well, want to fix this. And God says, well, you do something about it. And then we are, we instantly start backpedaling. Well, there's no way I could do something. If I could do something about it, then I wouldn't have asked you God to fix this for me. And also I really don't want to participate in this because this is hard. <laughs> the fixer is too much. We don't have any resources. We don't have the ability to do this. And then one of the reasons I'm convinced of the like utter goodness of God is because the response is the same every time. It's a very gentle, well, what do you have? And then, you know, we have to go look because we have no idea. <laughs> We're too busy catastrophizing <laughs> to realize that actually we do have some resources. There's a couple of lessons here that I have been reflecting upon this week. First of all, the fact that something is impossible is no excuse for not trying to do it. We often get convinced that just because we think something is impossible, there's no use even trying. Many of you will know the famous quote from Alice in Wonderland where Alice and the Queen are talking and Alice is like, there's no use trying. You can't believe impossible things. And the queen says, well, you haven't had much practice. <laughs> when I was your age, I did it for a half an hour every day. And sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. <laughs> That's silly, right? So that doesn't have anything to do with faith. It's from a children's book. How often do we need to be reminded of our own childlike faith? The eternal 
hope and goodness and light that children have who have no idea that impossible things aren't possible. They have no idea. They don't take no for an answer. They're like, I would like a pony for Christmas. <laughs> and you're like, that's not, that's not, that's not going to happen. We, we live in an apartment. And they're like, oh, well, I would like it to be pink. <laughs> right? Meanwhile, we're stuck in the boring, mundane drudgery of adulthood. And we're like, that can't be done. It's not logical. We better not even think about it. It's just a waste of time. Just because we think something is impossible is no excuse not to try to do it. Second, God often asks us to do the impossible, especially when we would rather God just fix whatever it is without our participation. We talked about this last week, right? Our participation is crucial. Jesus told people to do impossible things all the time. Like, you feed them, he told the disciples who thought he was off his rocker. To the paralyzed person that we talked about last Sunday, he was like, get up and walk. To a person who had never taken a step before ever, like never stood up, and he was like, get up. What? To a dead man, Lazarus, he said, come forth. Did you catch this? A dead person. Is this an appropriate time to use the phrase that the kids are saying? I am deceased. <laughs> a dead person? He's like, get up. And everyone around him is like, I'm sorry. What did he say? In all of these, there had to be participation from the other people. Third, when we give our resources, no matter how small or insignificant they may seem to God, we discover that the impossible isn't actually impossible. It's just improbable. And that's a big difference. With God, the odds are in our favor. <laughs> Maybe we need to be more like Lloyd in the classic 1994 film, Dumb and Dumber. And yes, it did hurt my soul to say classic film in 1994. We're all getting old, y'all. So if you haven't seen this movie, basically he's a doofus and he is like obsessed with Mary and he's like, we have to be together. And she's like, a fat chance. And he's like, well, what is the chance? And she's like, one in a million. And his response is not, oh, it's impossible. He's like, so you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> This is an obvious point, but I think it needs to be said, right? We always need to be reminded of this because we are always doing this, me especially. We have no idea what to do, but the starting point is always to bring whatever we have to Jesus. We can never tell what Jesus will do with it, but part of faith is the expectation that Jesus will do something we hadn't thought of, something new and creative. Like I guarantee you, whatever the disciples thought Jesus was gonna do with five biscuits, it was not make thousands of biscuits. Whatever they thought Jesus was gonna say to Lazarus, it was not get out here to a dead person. Whatever they thought was gonna happen when Jesus died on the cross and was buried, it was not, oh, he's alive again three days later. There's a missionary called J. Hudson Taylor and he said this, I feel like it's one of those statements you could put in a book. There are three stages in any work of God. Impossible, difficult, done. I feel like this is the story of different church. <laughs> Jared was like, we should start a church. And I was like, impossible. 
definitely not. And then we were like, all right, I will try. And then it was very hard. And then look, we're here. <laughs> it's been two years. <laughs> what do you have? I said that too excitedly. I'm going to be more gentle like God. What do you have? What do you have? What do you have? What resources do you have? What dreams do you have? What hopes do you have? What problems in your life do need a creative and unexpected solution? How do you want God to show up in your impossible situation? And how are you going to participate in this most mysterious, glorious, exciting and terrifying and miraculous and difficult process of trusting God and living life? I feel like that's a question for us to reflect upon this week. And you know, everyone's like, it's been a hard two years. Well, yeah, it has, okay? <laughs> it has been a hard two years. And also we want things now. Like we, we're, I feel like we're at the place where we can say, I want, I'm tired of this and I need something else, something more. Well, what do you have? Where do you want to go? What excitement has God put in your heart? What are you passionate about? What, are, what is the thing that you're like, that's never going to happen? Is it impossible? It's not an excuse for not trying it. Even if it fails, honestly. So what? We'll be sad. Then we'll get over it. And then we'll keep going. And we'll have learned something. That's how we all got here. Life itself is the point. Faith itself is the point. So we can just kind of reflect on this together, I think. What do you have? Where do you want to go? How do you want God to show up in your life? But as we sing, we have two more songs. Um, so you can all stand. And this song goes perfectly. I said this last week, I'm gonna say it again, because Jared is a genius. <laughs> um, and then I'll come back and give you a benediction.